Well, how many of you kids can tell me what tomorrow is? Preston, what's tomorrow? Tomorrow is Memorial Day. The last Monday in May each year is when our government has designated a, um, a federal holiday in which we remember all those people who have fought for us, the United States of America, to keep our freedom. Our freedom in America hasn't come without a price. It has come with a price. And our, our nation makes much effort to remember these people. On this day, grave sites um, of national cemeteries, most of them, perhaps all of them, are graced with flags, the United States of America. Government shuts down. Schools are closed. Many people be given the day off. It's a great day for picnics, a great day for family. It's holiday is really a, a good thing. It forces us to remember fallen soldiers. It forces us to remember the sacrifice they've made to keep our nation free. And the sacrifice is real. It's very real. I received a, an email late last night from Rich Garden, whose uh, son-in-law, Brad Davis, is uh, fighting over in Iraq and... Um, let me, just, let me just read what he said and then I'll, I'll comment on it. He said, There was an IED incident on Saturday in Iraq in which three soldiers in Brad's unit, Brad is Brad Davis, their son-in-law, we've prayed for him often, prayed, Phil prayed for him just right a little bit ago. Three soldiers in Brad's unit were killed and two were injured. Fortunately, Brad was not one of them. Unfortunately, three families will be burying their family members sometime in the next two weeks. Among the, those are Brad's roommate. That's how close it, it touches. Clayton Dunn was his name. He just recently returned to Iraq from stateside. He was here because his wife gave birth to a baby girl and then unexpectedly lost all use of her legs. Is this the wife or the baby, Rich? Do you know? The wife, she's now feeling, has feeling back in her legs, but will be going through physical therapy, learning to walk again. And all the while, she'll be dealing with a two-month-old and the grief of being a widow. Please pray for her. Her name is Haiti. Clayton and one of the injured soldiers, Brong, were the only other Christians in Brad's unit. Clayton helped Brad through his rough days. Becca says that of all the guys there, Clayton was the most ready to meet his Lord. So basically, Brad is on his own now. He really needs your prayers to help him get through the next few months. I'm asking you to please remember him in prayers whenever you can. Thanks. The other soldier's name is Ford, and he's not a believer. Um, in fact, uh, the gardens have brought some cards. If you would like to write a note on those cards. They're going to send them to um, Clayton Dunn, the widow, actually Haiti Dunn, the widow, and uh, the two injured soldiers. And you have an opportunity even to write to Brad also. So you can chase them down after service. That's a, a great way for you this Memorial Day to remember the soldiers that have fallen in war. Um, in fact, I think it's appropriate even now to, to just pray for Brad again. So let's pray. Lord, I thank You that we live in a free nation Lord, though it hasn't come easy, it has come hard. And even as many are in Iraq now, and death has even come close to Brad with his roommate who has helped him spiritually. I pray for Brad right now. I pray that he would find another source of spiritual encouragement. I think of how difficult it is in the fighting in Iraq. In the wartime mentality, how difficult it is to keep a mind focused upon you and upon your grace and goodness uh, in these times, I pray for this widow Haiti. Uh, I pray you'd strengthen her and help her, give her support and encouragement. For these injured um, ones, uh, I pray, Lord, that if their faith in you is there and real. I pray you'd strengthen it. I pray even that this might be a, a wake-up call to them, how gracious you are oftentimes to discipline us and to bring difficulties and trials in our life because it's those that refine us and draw us closer to you. If they aren't, one of yours, and they don't know you, I pray, Lord, you'd grant them repentance this day. They would realize their life is short and that they, um, that they can have nothing more, um, Lord, but to live for you. So I pray that you'd show them the glories of Christ.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Memorial Day is often is also a good holiday to remember those who have fought in our services, been service in our our, our country. And uh, for all those who have served or in the military, they um, maybe not have paid the ultimate price, but they have paid somewhat of a price. And, uh, you know, in, in recent years we've done this at, Mem- at Memorial Day. We'd just like to acknowledge those who have served in, uh, in the military force. If you have, would you just stand and so we can acknowledge you? Let me just give you a hand. Thanks for serving our country. And in fact, say, say, why don't you just, why don't you say when and how you serve? So, Dad, why don't you start over here? When and how'd you serve? I, I served in 1961 to 63 in the U.S. Navy, uh, half that time with the Marines. Okay. Good. Roger. Roger. Okay. Roger. In fact, right now, you're full-time training people to go to Iraq. Good. Jerry? Thank you, man. You can be seated. And this is a day, it's Memorial Day, to remember those who served our country. And, and it is so appropriate because in our text today, we see God making efforts, special efforts, in fact, to remember those who are His. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, the last chapter of the Old Testament. We've been going through this oracle, is what it is, and we've um, we're near the end. In fact, I hope to finish chapter 4 next week. But we're in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. I want to read them for you now. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of, there it is, remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. In many ways, this passage of Scripture is the climax of Malachi's oracle. It is the point in the book when God's character is demonstrated to be different than the character of the people of Israel. The people in Israel may have had a memory lapse and it may have forgotten things about God, but God will never forget. Now, before we jump into this section, I think you need to catch the context of it, um, the context of the whole book. It would be worthwhile for us, really, as we then catch how climactic this is. And I trust that perhaps maybe you remember the titles of my messages Maybe you do, maybe you don't. The very first message I preached on Malachi was entitled, Don't Forget the Lord. And uh, we, I surveyed all the book of Malachi and showed how the people of Malachi's day had forgotten the Lord. My first, second exposition of Malachi was chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And that title was, Don't Forget What? Does anyone remember? Don't Forget Encourage me now, please. Don't forget His, his love, right? You see it right there in verse 2. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? He goes on to tell them that, well, Esau I destroyed, and you I should have destroyed, but I didn't because I loved you. Don't forget His love. Israel had forgotten His love. My second message was chapter 1 verse 6 through 2 9. It was in three parts. So, what was that title? Don't forget his, his honor, right? It comes there from verse 6. A, a, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect? We rightly give honor to a father and to a master. But the people of Israel had forgotten to honor the Lord. They're bringing lame, sick, blind sacrifices. They're despising the altar of the Lord, failing in their words. 
Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. I had whatever this was, my fifth message, four or five, whatever. I said, don't forget His, his people. Right? Five times in this passage, um, these people had dealt treacherously with other people in the covenant community. They had broken faith. They had not maintained faithful relationships. They weren't faithful to the Lord. They weren't faithful to their marriages. They weren't faithful to their community. So don't forget His people. You need to be faithful to the people. My next message came in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. I entitled it, Don't Forget His Justice. Right? Chapter 2, verse 17. Right at the end. Where is the God of justice? They'd forgotten that He was a God of justice. They looked around and saw the wicked seemingly being blessed. And they said... God, what it says in verse 17, God looks upon those who do evil and think they're good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. But they've forgotten the God of justice. Oh, but He will come and purify His people and bring His judgment as well. In my next message, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, don't forget His faithfulness. In that one, I think, is the only one um, that didn't have a word in there, but it really ties all these. Don't forget His faithfulness. He's faithful to His covenant. Verse 6, He doesn't change. Therefore, you, Jacob, are not consumed, though you deserve to be. He's faithful to repenters, right? Turn to me and I will turn to you. He's faithful to givers, right? Give me the whole tithe. <clears throat> then last week, we looked at verses 13 through 15. Don't forget His, his ways, They've been arrogant. They, they didn't realize that God will take the proud and will suppress them, but He lifts the lowly. They've forgotten that God doesn't look on the outside. He looks at the heart, verse 14. And in verse 15, that God's judgment is delayed. Well, this week we come, we're going to reverse all of that. Rather than observing a list of Israel forgetting the love of God or the honor of God or the people of God or the justice of God or the faithfulness of God or the ways of God, we see the Lord remembering. He's remembering His people. And that's who God is. God is a God who doesn't forget. We may forget, but He remembers. And really the aim of my message this morning is really more just to encourage you. To encourage you in our God who remembers well, my outline this morning is simple. I'm just going to ask three questions of the text. Who does God remember? How does God remember? Why does God remember? Who, how, and why? First of all, who does God remember? We see these people identified here in verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Twice these people are identified as those who feared the Lord. You see at the beginning of the verse, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, God remembered them. And then towards the end, for those who fear the Lord, right? The idea here is that they respect his authority. They, they see God who he is and they, they tremble at him, right? And they, they trust him and follow them in obedience out of fear, knowing that He's going to punish those who are evildoers. At the end of this verse, we see another description of those who remember, those who esteem My name. The idea here is that they have thought of His name, thought of His character, and have regard for it. They treat Him as He deserves. And apparently, what this verse, these verses show is that not all in Israel had forgotten the Lord. There were some who had remembered what they'd been taught. And in so remembering, they, they sought to live a life worthy of Him. They feared Him and they esteemed His name. It, it may have been few, but there were some. Certainly there were some who had observed the destruction of Edom and seen how God preserved Israel and said, boy, the Lord must really love us so as not to destroy us. We are, we are worthy of their fate, but it can only be God's kindness to us that spared us. And certainly there were those in the land who trusted in the law and brought the best of their flock to be sacrificed. Thereby honoring the Lord. And certainly there were those who were keenly aware of the covenant that God has made with His people and compelled them to deal faithfully with others. And certainly there were those who had insight that though it appeared the wicked now are being blessed, they had the insight to look forward and look beyond that and realize that you know, the God of justice will come. And there were those who knew the faithfulness of God, regularly confessed their sins, 
gave their whole tithe into the storehouse and were blessed by it. And there were those who remembered the ways of God and sought to cultivate a heart of humility and love towards God that trusted in His name. If pressed, we might be able to come up with some names of people who trusted in Him. Like Malachi is probably one who feared the Lord. Other names, maybe Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if they were still around when Malachi wrote this oracle, they would have been very old. But they were those who trusted the Lord. They were those who feared the Lord, who esteemed His name. In fact, it's interesting, in both Ezra and Nehemiah, you can look at both those books, there's an extended section in chapter 9 of both of those books in which each of these men demonstrate their fear of the Lord. And to illustrate this point, I thought it would be good to spend some time in the book of Ezra. So you can turn, if you want, to the book of Ezra, or you can just kind of sit back and relax and listen to this. We're going to survey here the whole chapter, Ezra chapter 9. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job is where you can find it. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. Right at the end of Ezra chapter 8, Ezra tells a story about how he and several other Levites made the journey from Babylon back into Jerusalem. Rather than invoking and seeking the protection of the king's troops and horsemen, they sought to seek protection from the Lord. And they traveled all the way from Persia back to Jerusalem just trusting the Lord. It's because they they feared Him. And the Lord answered their prayer, brought them safely. They put the treasures in the temple and worshipped the Lord by offering sacrifices to Him. And then in Ezra 9, we read here in verse 1, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, this is Ezra saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Well, this is the issue we read about in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, right? Rather than remaining faithful to the Lord and faithful to the covenant community, instead they had intermingled with the peoples of the lands. God expressly told them not to, and yet they had taken daughters for their wives. They had dealt treacherously with those of the covenant community, and Ezra's sensitivity to the Lord was great. He gives his testimony of what he did in verses 3 and 4. He said, when I heard about this matter... I tore my garment and my robe. It's a sign of repentance in the Old Testament. And pulled some of the hair from my head and pulled my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord, of the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. That is a picture of the fear of the Lord. When sin has taken place, just a, a ripping of the clothes is what they used to do. In fact, I remember reading through the Bible a couple years ago, and remember we got to a point about ripping clothes. SR would always say, Dad, why did they rip their clothes? Well, it's a sign often in the Old Testament about just remorse and repentance. And even it looks for here in verse 4, this is a sign of fear. Ezra was fearing the Lord Everyone who trembled at the words of God. That's what it means to fear the Lord, is to to take the words of God and to to tremble at them. And you get a sense here that it wasn't just Ezra. It was everyone who trembled at the words of God. We don't know how many of those were. Could have been many, could have been few. We we don't know, but it did demonstrate there were some who who feared the Lord. They grieved, they humbled themselves. They were fearful of the punishment that God would bring upon them because of their faithlessness. And for much of the day, they sat in contrition. When was the last time that you saw the sin of people around you perhaps and sat on your doorstep wailing the sin of your neighborhood? That's what Ezra was doing. And then he tells us what he did just before sunset at the evening offering. He said, finally, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, partially naked. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. He's falling on his knees. 
He's stretching out his hands to the Lord as God, maybe like this, maybe with his head bowed, just pleading for the sins of the people because he knew what had taken place. He feared the Lord. There was no flippancy or arrogance in this way. He was coming before the Lord as a, as a subject who had come before a king, pleading and begging mercy. And then Ezra's prayer, look at it. He says, verse 6, we're guilty. Oh my God, I'm, a, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. <clears throat> we are a guilty, guilty people, O oh Lord. He says, we've always been that way. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt on account of our iniquities. We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands through the sword to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is this day. And then he acknowledges the grace that God still brought to them even though they were guilty. Right? Verse 8. But now for a brief moment of grace, now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant back from Babylonian captivity, back from under the king of Persia, back into Jerusalem, an escaped remnant to give us a peg in His holy place. Just a, a, a setting there in Jerusalem where the temple is that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage God has not forsaken us. He's remembered us, right? He's extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. You've given us a place of worship. You have um, given us a wall to protect us. You've done this through miraculous ways, right? stirring in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to fund this, this trip back. Then he says, Here are our current sins, O Lord, verse 10. He says, now our God, what shall we say after this? You've been so gracious to us. You've given us a place. You've stirred the heart of the king. You've brought us back. He says, we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abomination, which have filled it from end to end and with their impurities. So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of a land and leave it as an inheritance forever. That's what God told them to do. And then what they do? They did that very thing they were commanded not to. He said, but even after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, O God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserved, have given us an escaped remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to, point, to the point of destruction until there's no remnant nor any who escape? And then really the summary comes here in verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Now that's what it looks like to fear the Lord. That's what it looks like. It looks like um, just confession, acknowledging His grace, and just saying, I deserve to be punished, God, but I plead your mercy. I plead your mercy. I see the evil of our ways and I hate it. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, is to hate evil. And that's what Ezra's doing. He's seeing the evil around him because of his fear of the Lord. He's sitting appalled for hours, only following by a prayer of confession and pleading for fresh mercy to come. And should we have time, we could turn over to Nehemiah and read Nehemiah chapter 9 and see the exact same thing taking place. Nehemiah is Paul that sends the people and offered up a prayer of confession to the Lord. 
It's a great fear. It's a great example, though, the fear of the Lord. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. They maybe exceeded maybe their great-grandfathers, but they came beforehand, before Malachi. And the problems that they were facing are the same problems that Malachi was facing. And even though Ezra and Nehemiah both prayed like this, the people still forgot the Lord. But there was a remnant. Turn back to Malachi. We're going to see this remnant those who feared the Lord. And what I love about this is that these people who feared the Lord weren't even seeking the help of the Lord. I mean, look closely at what it says here in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They're, they're talking with each other. It's not like they were even praying to the Lord, talking with each other. Now, we don't know what they were saying. Maybe they were talking about the state of affairs in Israel, which wasn't very good. Maybe they were... Seeking to encourage one another. Hey, brother, remain faithful. Yes, they're being unfaithful out there, but we fear the Lord, so let's, let's remain faithful. Or maybe they're digging through the Scriptures to, to see how it is that God might strengthen them. Promises to claim of how it is they might walk faithfully to the Lord. We don't know, but they're talking to each other, probably trying to encourage one another in some way, but they weren't even seeking the Lord's help. But it was the Lord, verse 16, who gave attention to them and heard it. And I read that this week and studied it and uh, found great encouragement in my heart that when those who fear the Lord are in desperate need of help, the Lord can even come and help even when it never gets to the point of seeking help. Because God knows our ways. Remember when Jesus taught His disciples to pray? He said, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And here's the instance. God knew what they need needed even before they asked Him. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said the same thing. Don't worry what, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles all eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The point of these passages isn't that we shouldn't seek God or shouldn't ask when we're in great need. We should ask and we should seek and we should pray. But the point is that God knows. And He very well may come and help even before we ask. And I, I trust that these words just coming as gospel truth, comforting to your souls this morning. If you fear the Lord, you don't need much to worry about the difficulties surrounding you. You might be, be surrounded by wicked people. This, Trust the Lord knows your difficulties, say at work, say with your family that you're dealing with. You may be trying your best to maintain your righteousness. You may seek encouragement here among the church, and rightly you should. And it may not have even occurred to you so much to pray. God knows your situation, and He hears those and takes heed. So fret not. The Lord knows your difficulties you're going through, and He remembers your struggles. Well, how does God remember? So my second point, verses 16 and 17. It's a little bit different in your notes. Verse 16 and 17. How does God remember? God remembers by writing a book. That's what He does. Look again at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him. For those who fear the Lord and those who esteem His name. Now as we read this verse, we might have all kinds of questions about this book. What, what kind of book was this? What sort of things are written in this book? Where's this book? How will it be used? All these questions might stir to mind. And uh, one of the things, fortunately, the Bible records for us several instances where a similar book of remembrance was written. And we can look at these Old Testament examples where a book of remembrance was written and see how it was applied and see how it was used. And then we can draw how its inferences about how it's used in heaven. Well, the first instance comes from the book of Esther. Maybe you remember the story. Ahasuerus had a falling out with his wife, Queen Vashti. Esther had been chosen to be queen. Mordecai was Esther's kind of adopted father, was his, her uncle, who Mordecai was. And so even when she was a queen, Mordecai still had some contact with her. Well, one day it happened that Mordecai was sitting at the, at the gate of the king. And he overheard some kind of conversation, maybe through the rumor mills. Something came up. He discovered two of the king's officials, Bigthan and Teresh, were angry with King Ahasuerus and plotted to kill him. Mordecai heard of this. 
and said, that's not good if they kill the king because if they kill the king, who else are they going to kill? Probably the queen. And so he invested interest in this. And so Mordecai told Esther what was taking place. She in turn informed the king in Mordecai's name. There was an investigation in these matters. Mordecai's word were found to be true. And Big Than and Teresh were hanged in the gallows. And it says, Esther chapter 2, verse 23, in the presence of the king, records of the events were written in the books of the Chronicles. Whole story is written down. Now, sometime later, King Ahasuerus found it difficult to sleep one night. And rather than trying to toss and turn, he, <laughs> he wanted others to join his misery. So he called his servants, woke him up, got him out of bed, and gave an order to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles to be brought and read to him. And one of the sections that was read to him was a story about Mordecai unveiling the plot of Big Than and Teresh. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been stowed upon this Mordecai for this? And his servants replied, Nothing has been done for him. And so the king made plans to order Mordecai. And you remember the story, right? He brought Haman in, who Haman thought he was going to be honored. He hated this Mordecai. And Haman said, well, dress him in a royal robe that the king has worn. Put him upon a horse that the king has ridden upon. Lead him through the city square on horseback and have one of the noble princes proclaim, thus shall it be done to the man to whom the king desires to honor. Haman, thinking he's going to get it himself, and tables, ironically, in great measure, was flipped. And Haman had to honor Mordecai. You remember that story? Most of you do. I bring your attention back to that because it's the book of records that was read to the king. This is like the book of remembrance described here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, the same Hebrew words are used to describe this. I don't know why it's translated different. It shouldn't be. It's a zephyr zakron. Sefer means to write, to scribe words. Zakron zakher means to remember. It's a book of remembrance. It's a book of records. It's a book for remembering. And the Lord will use this book in the same way that Ahasuerus used his book. It will stand forever as a testimony of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And never will it be possible for the Lord to forget those who fear his name. There's his book. And should God ever be one to forget, which he's not, he's even got this written record, a perpetual reminder before the Lord of those who fear him. You know, in this way, it's a bit like a war memorial. This Memorial Day, it's appropriate probably to share this illustration. I, I remember visiting the USS Arizona Memorial in Hawaii. Are you, are you jealous, Michelle? <laughs> the USS Arizona Memorial. And we're there, I forget how long ago I was there. Boy, 10 years ago? No, 13 years ago. My parents were with me. I think um, Carissa was great with child. Yvonne was great with child with Carissa. <laughs> yeah. And we visit this memorial. How many of you have been there? The memorial? Quite a few of you. It tells a story of December 7, 1941. The Japanese came, surprise attack, bombed Pearl Harbor. In less than 10 minutes, the USS Arizona was hit by two bombs. I think when it hit it at 10 or 8 o'clock in the morning, when it hit at 8.06, the whole front of the boat kind of almost severed off, totally damaged the front. The ship soon sunk to the bottom of the harbor, killing more than 1,000 sailors. 1,177 sailors died on that ship, many of them caught underneath. The only ones that survived were those who happened to be on duty, happened to be on board at the time. 334 survived. The attack became the catalyst of the United States. The next day, Franklin Roosevelt declared war on Japan, December 8th. And a few days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States, and thus we became involved in World War II. Well, the United States government has erected a memorial that spans over the ship's sunken remains. The ship is like this. The memorial kind of goes over it so you can see it a little bit. There's still oil dripping from um, that, that ship that drips up, and you kind of see that. I remember seeing the oil mark kind of right there in the sea that drips, I think, like a quart of oil a day. It's been doing so since 1941. Well, inside that memorial, there's a shrine room. It's a list of all the sailors killed on the ship. I remember seeing that big marble wall of, of 1,100 names of all those who were there on the ship. And it's there for a reason. It's there lest we ever forget those fallen soldiers. It's there lest we ever forget the surprise attack that might never come upon us again. Each year the memorial receives 1.5 million visitors. 
you all have added to that statistic then who have been there. To pay their respects to the fallen soldiers remember the attack of Pearl Harbor on that day. It's going to be very hard for the United States to forget what took place at Pearl Harbor. Like today, it's 9-11. September 11th, it's going to be very hard for this generation to forget. With specific monuments built, with frequent visitors to the monument, the memory is going to live on. And so also, when God writes this book of remembrance, forever etched in the annals of heaven is a record of those who feared the Lord in Malachi's day. I trust it's encouraging to your souls is that God is making extra effort not just to rely upon His mind as perfect and infinite as it is. He's never forgotten anything to even write it in a book. Well, a book of remembrance also comes up in Ezra. The book of Ezra. In 538 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia, was stirred in his heart by the Lord to rebuild this temple in Jerusalem. And so Ezra, 40,000 other Jews held in captivity in Persia, made this trip to Jerusalem to restore the temple to the Lord God of Israel. When they returned to begin the work, some of their enemies noticed what was taking place and sought to discourage them. They frightened them. They threatened them. They even, as Ezra 4, 5 says, hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's like decades worth of discouraging these Jews who are working to rebuild the city. Eventually, with the return of Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, the city was taking place. And as it was really growing up and really becoming strong, and this was even 50, 70 years later of all this building, construction went slow back then. The enemies wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and said, The Jews are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. They said, hey, let it be known to the king, if these people go, they're always been a rebellious people. They're, they're not going to pay taxes to you. They're going to go off on their own way. And so they said, may the king search the record books. There it is, a book of remembrance. May he go back into the annals and search to see what history might reveal about the behavior of the Jews. Artaxerxes issued a search and found some of their accusations to be true. And so he stopped the work. And then... The Jews then pleaded, make another search because Cyrus issued a decree for us to come back. And so when Darius, another king, issued a search, he found a scroll there in which was a memorandum. There it is, a scroll of remembrance, the same words. Now, it's a different language. In Ezra, it's Aramaic, different than Hebrew. But the Aramaic equivalent is exactly like that. It is a scroll of remembrance, a book of remembrance, in which they found the original decree of Cyrus. And with that decree, it came with authority so as to be able to start rebuilding the city and the temple again. You need to catch that these are the same words, same language used in in Malachi. And they hold the same force, right? Here's God. He writes a book in the universe. And and as people refer to that book, it, it holds an administrative force that comes upon them. I love the way Dave Duell said this in an article I found in the Master Seminary Journal. Dave Duell said this, In light of the evidence for the consistent use of the memorandum or the, the book of remembrance and for its fairly well-defined function, the Malachi 3.16 passage may be explained as follows. God's memorandum is on file in His royal archives for the great and terrible day of His visitation in battle against His enemies. Malachi 4, which we'll get to next week. On that day, when drawn from the royal archives, it's like in heaven, the heaven royal archives, the memorandum will engage God's administrative authority to spare the pure sons of Levi But that time God will burn to the very roots the chaff whose names do not appear in the memorandum. There it is. Hebrews chapter 6. I think it's chapter 6 verse 12. God is not so unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and still in ministering to the saints. God is not unjust to forget. 
And God writes these memorandums down, writes these scrolls down, so that they can come with administrative power on the final day. Which really leads us to our last point this morning. Why does God remember? Verse 17 and 18. Why does God remember? Simply put, there's a day that God is preparing for. For His return. That's what verse 17 says. Look, they will be Mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. This day he's talking about, talking about this day he's going to prepare his own possessions, oftentimes called the day of the Lord. It's referred to twice in chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be chaff, and the, the day that is coming will be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 3, you will tread down the wicked and they will be ashes under your soles and the feet on the day in which I am preparing. Here's the day of the Lord. Next week we're going to spend more time pulling that out. But sufficient is it today just to say that the day of the Lord is a day when He establishes His kingdom, avenging His wickedness, rewarding the righteous. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day when the Lord settles account with those who have ever lived God's judgment upon the righteous, His salvation coming to those who have hoped in Him, who have feared His name. Daniel spoke of that day, describing it in one of his visions. He says in Daniel 9, 7, verses 9 and 10, I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took His seat. Thousands upon thousands were attending Him and myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat and the books were opened. And one of those books would have been this book the book of remembrance for the people in Israel's day. And those who fear the Lord can have the assurance that when the day comes, they stand in the presence of the Lord, their name will be written in His books. Their deeds they've done will be written down. The fear of the Lord they demonstrated will be recorded. And, and when you stand before the Lord, if you fear Him, you don't have to rely upon the Lord's memory saying, Oh God, remember when this happened? You can say, God... Make a search of the heavenly archives and find the book. And you'll be vindicated in that day. What's written down will serve as a reminder to the Lord of hosts. will serve as testimony to everybody of the faith that they had in Him. You know, God is not like us in needing lists. You know, I'm always writing lists down. Creating lists of things to do. Okay, what do I got to do today? You know, spend some time just writing my list down, my five things to do, my ten things to do, of all I want to get done. My wife is the queen of lists. That's unbelievable. Sometimes we wake up in the morning and she's, oh, I was busy at night and worrying, and so, you know, a whole piece of paper all down with lists. And I'm trying to teach my son, right? That's why we've been making some lists for you, right? But you know what? God doesn't need lists like that because he remembers. But, but listen, to assure our hearts, that he will get it done and he will remember. He writes these lists, these books of, of remembrance for us. And I love the way that the Lord expresses the security of the hope we have for those who fear him. It says, they will be mine. He will grab them. He will hold them tight. He will not let them go like a child holds on to their favorite doll. Doesn't let the other kids have it because the doll is mine. I see that frequently in my home. Some of you have in yours, I'm sure. But God has taken every precaution to ensure that those who fear His name will be with Him in glory. John 10, verses 27-29 through says this, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand, is what Jesus says, because they are Mine. And then the very next verse in demonstration of the Trinity really says, My Father has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's a double grip, right? You want to grab something really strong, you don't grab with one hand. You grab with both hands. And that's the reality of those who are in Christ. Is they're grabbed not only in the hand of Jesus, they're also in the hand of the Father. And no one can snatch them away. They will be mine, is what he says. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for His disciples. said, Holy Father, keep these disciples in Your name, the name which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name which You have given Me. And I guarded them so that not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that Scripture would be fulfilled. 
And those who are His, He kept and He guarded. He kept. And so if we believe in Christ, Jesus is one who guards us and keeps us and protects us until that final day. That grip of both. Father and the Son grabbing hold of us. See, when God puts a claim upon a soul, His future is certain. Records it in a book, keeps it in His hand, and doesn't let them face the judgment. Right? He says right there in the end of verse 17, I will spare them as a man spares his own son. That's how the universe works. And that day, the day of judgment comes. There are two types of people. Those who fear the Lord and those who don't. And for those who fear the Lord, have placed their hope and trusted Him, believed in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ, He'll show mercy. Though their sins deserve condemnation, just like Israel, they're not meriting anything, but they're just fearing the Lord, trembling before Him, confessing their sins. They'll be shown mercy through the blood of the cross. See, it's by faith that we become children of God and not children of wrath. And God shows us His mercy upon us rather than His wrath. Simply because we've feared Him, we've trusted Him. But to those who have failed to fail to put their fear, failed to fear the Lord, their um, their destination's a lot worse. We see that verse, chapter four, verse one, burn like a furnace, to be like chaff, set ablaze. They'll be tread down, verse three. There'll be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. It's a terrible consequence for those who don't fear the Lord. And see, this day won't catch God by surprise. He's been preparing for this day. I'm preparing them, verse 17. We've been preparing for our fifth child for months. My wife is pregnant. Most of you know that. We're delivering any day now. Any day now. In fact, even today, I was worried that we might be at the hospital today. I'll end up another guy to come and preach in my spot. And I say, hey, can I call you at 3 in the morning? He says, yes, you can call me at 3 in the morning and I'll come. And it may have been that, but that's how close we are. But we've been preparing for this day for months. Yvonne's been out garage garage sales shopping, getting lots of baby clothes. Has uh, found a good deal in a new stroller and baby car seat combination because our old ones are worn out. That's what four kids do. They wear out things like that. We've made plans for where the baby sleeps. We've resurrected this old bassinet for the baby that Grandma Lola slept in, that Yvonne slept in, that all our kids slept in. Great historical value. <laughs> historical value in this thing. Maybe it's a memorial, I'm not sure. but <laughs> We've been thoughtful of our schedules. There have been this week some activities, right? Our family's getting together in, uh, in the Elgin area. And Yvonne said, hey, they're getting together tomorrow for Memorial Day. Do you want to go? And we thought, we can't go. Yvonne has a history of fast labors, you know, boom. And uh, we're an hour away, that's no good. We can't go on Monday. Think about our vacation. You know, we're not going to vac- we're going to vacation way at the end of August this year just to give some time with the baby. We've been planning these things. And in fact, even this morning, I, I noticed as I walked out, I'm not sure why I noticed it this morning and not last night, um, I noticed these, these tubs called maternity clothes on them. Yvonne's very ready to give those back to the people who lent them. Right? Are you ready? <laughs> very ready to get those things back. See, we've been preparing for this day. We don't know when this day will come. We're hoping this week, but we've been working real hard to prepare for this. And God has been preparing for the day that He's going to return to earth. Have you been preparing for that day? The way to prepare for that day is really simple. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. On that day, all of humanity will be divided into two groups. We see those groups here in verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve Him. You could easily add from verse 16, between the one who fears the Lord and the one who doesn't fear Him, between the one who esteems His name and the one who profanes His name. See, when it comes down to it, all of humanity is divided into two people. Those who love Jesus, who fear His name, who trust in His sacrifice, and those who don't. And those who are on this side walk righteously before the Lord. And those who are on this side walk wickedly. And those who are on this side serve the Lord, as verse 18 says. And those on this side don't serve the Lord. The Bible often separates the, the whole of humanity into two groups of people. The tares and the wheat. 
The tares go in the barn. I'm sorry. The wheat goes in the barn and the tares are burned. The good fish and the bad fish brings them in. And where the good fish go, they're kept. The bad fish are thrown away and destroyed. He was talking about he's going to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And, and, and what's interesting about this, the Lord remembers all that was done. Maybe you remember in Matthew 25 when He talks about the sheep on the one side and the goats on the other. When, when God says, hey, you all are cursed of Me, be, be gone. I said, why? He said, I was hungry and you didn't give Me anything to eat. I was thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick. You didn't visit me. I was in prison. And you didn't come to me. Have you you ever thought about that? God has these details about what the wicked people didn't do in not serving Him. And He has the details. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat to the sheep, He says. "I I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. All these details about all these people. Have you ever thought about how God does that? There's six billion people living on the planet right now and He can detail about the lives of each one of them. Probably in the course of history, there have been another six billion that have lived and died. And He can give the detail of all this. And, and maybe, yes, it is in His mind, absolutely, but I believe there are these books written about ways in which people have demonstrated their trust in Jesus and walking righteously or walking wickedly. And I just say to you, you need to be prepared for the day when you meet Him. And the way to prepare for the day is to fear Him. He's your only hope. Put your trust in Him and God will remember you on that day. Well, I hope this is good news for you today. I hope you've heard this and reflected upon this, that God is one who remembers because that's the message title this morning. It's the climax of Matthew in many ways. Is that though we may forget and though people do forget, God remembers. He is so unlike us. Let's pray and thank our remembering God. Oh Lord, I thank You that You are one who remembers our, our deeds. Both good and bad. The bad deeds You knew before they were even done. It says in Colossians chapter 3 that our sins were nailed to the cross. The only way they were nailed to the cross is if you knew about them and staked them on the cross. And Lord, in the future, you know that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that you prepared beforehand. Our works in the future, Lord, were prepared beforehand. And you know what they are. And I think they're written down someplace in heaven. And that, Lord, we can, we can rest to see all the things that You've worked in us by faith in Christ, to walk obediently to You, to love You and to serve You, and to know that our, our sinful ways have been nailed to the cross and our righteous ways have been done in You. You're the one that worked us and created us. And so ultimately, Lord, that day we can rejoice. And so I pray for those of us who, who fear His name, May this message come as an encouragement to our souls. And for those who don't fear Him, I pray that this day might be a day of salvation. They would realize where their sin will take them, every sin ever committed, paraded before all to see, justly then condemned to hell. I pray, Lord, Lord, that You today would grant them repentance. That they would serve You, the only King of kings, the only Lord of lords, the only one worthy of all of our praise and adoration. Trust these things in the name of Christ. Amen.